Let's pray together. By your grace through it all, Lord. What a magnificent song. You are our gracious God and how we love you and just sit in awe of you. We are in awe of your loyal, steadfast love. You are all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You created all things, and in you all things have their being. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, sacrificed for us, bloodshed to purchase us to God, for you, God, to make us your people to serve you. You have rescued us. You are worthy of our worship and praise. And we recognize that you, Lord, are always at work doing great things. Thank you for the great things you are working among us and within us and around us this very weekend. Thank you for your faithfulness to the men this weekend that are at our men's retreat. We ask that you would continue to bless them this morning and bring them home refreshed in you. Thank you for the work and the great things you're doing here this weekend in each of us too. Give each of us grace to continue trusting in you rather than being anxious. We pray for the faith to see your loving purposes unfold in all that happens around us. Give us faith to believe in the ultimate victory of your Holy Spirit over disease and death and all the powers of darkness. And Lord, give us the faith to leave in your hands the welfare of our loved ones. We thank you for the opportunity to worship this morning together, and we pray for Gary as he teaches us here this morning, and we pray um, if, during the next service when the Sunday school teachers are in each classroom and Becca with the youth teach. We hate, pray that you would help each one to speak following the leading of your Holy Spirit and give each of us ears to hear your words. We are yours, Lord, and we love you, and we thank you for meeting us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the scripture reading for the Gary's message this morning comes from 1 Peter 1. And in 1 Peter, in case you're not sure, is near the back of your Bible, behind Hebrews and James. And Peter wrote this book to help his readers, and even us today, to deal with some of the hard stuff of life. So as I read the word of the Lord, I'm gonna be reading it in the message version because it's an easy to read version, but Gary will be teaching us from a more literal translation when he comes up to teach. So listen as I read the passage of 1 Peter 1, three through nine in the message. What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus. 
Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you will have it all, life healed and whole. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved pure. Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps this all up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. You never saw him, yet you love him. You still don't see him, yet you trust him with laughter and singing. Because you kept on believing, you'll get what you're looking forward to, total salvation. And, um, I get to introduce Gary, and I am excited to get to do that. Gary is the only past PBC pastor to serve at all three churches, right? The original PBC in Palo Alto, and then here in Cupertino, and now currently, and I think for about the past 14 years, um, at the PBC, what started as PBC Willow Glen and is now called Willow Glen Bible Church. And he was one of the three main preachers here when I came with my family of little tiny kids 30 years ago. He also began our ministry in Liberia with Gus Marway in 1992 and first went there in 1997. And two fun facts about Gary is that he loves children and he does a great Donald Duck impression. <laughs> we may have to hear just a bit. And he loves basketball. Are you still refing? This year will be the first year I know. Okay, he has refed basketball for years. So we are very glad to have Gary. So help me warmly welcome him this morning. Thank you, Sharon. Wow. What a uh, joy it is <clears throat> for me to be with you this morning. I wish you didn't have those masks on, but I, I can still tell most of who most of you are in spite of those masks. Um, well, I'm uh, currently entering the final two months of my paid pastoral ministry. And so I've been doing a great deal of reflecting. And uh, I just want you to know this place has been an important part of my life and my ministry. Uh, I, Kathy and I raised our three boys in this church. Uh, some of my deepest friendships were forged here. Some of my best friends still go to church here. I spent 21 years of my life um, ministering, shepherding this body, 
And so this church will always be an important part of my life and a part of my prayers. So I, I just feel a great honor to be able to uh, bring the word to you this morning. If you brought a Bible, would you open it <clears throat> to the first chapter of First Peter? As Sharon mentioned to us, this little book is all about how to handle the trials and sufferings of life. That's what it's about. Peter's writing to a group of people who are going through a tremendous amount of suffering and are about to go through a great deal more. Peter makes numerous references to their suffering in the book. And when he does, he always refers to it as a fire. Peter is thinking about life as a furnace. And we know that a furnace can either burn something into a crisp or refine it into pure gold. And we all know that's true because we see it all the time, don't we? We see people going through the same sufferings and tragedies of life, but who come out totally different. Two people, same circumstances, yet one comes out bitter, cynical, perpetually and permanently damaged forever. And yet the other person who goes through it comes out of the tragedy softer, more tender, more humble, more willing to help other people. And sometimes they come out of that tragedy with more purpose and direction in their life than they ever had. The same circumstance, yet one comes out burnt and the other comes out purified, like gold. Our suffering and troubles were designed to make us something great, not crushed, not small, not broken. Suffering can be like a furnace that turns our heart and our character like pure gold. That's what this letter is about. We're all gonna go through the furnace at some point in life. Peter's desire is that we not be burnt up, but that the fire make us something splendid. Everything in this letter is here to equip us to come out of the furnace more brilliant than when we went in. In the Christian life, suffering and glory are inextricably bound together because our forerunner, our pioneer, Jesus Christ, came to glory through suffering. We'll celebrate that in a little while. 
Peter will go on to say later in the chapter that the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And as a result, that is the pattern for all of us, for you and I. A servant is not above their master. The Christian view of suffering is unique in the world. In the scriptures, there's so many profound principles that distinguish Christianity from the way almost all people view suffering. Our Western secular world sees suffering as a curse. But we have a God who through suffering came to glory. Now there isn't just one passage that teaches us everything we need to know about suffering. But I selected these four verses this morning to share because they teach us a great deal about suffering. So let's look at them together. I want to read it again. Verses six to nine of chapter one. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I just want to point out three things in this text for you this morning. The first one is in verse 6. Peter says, in this, you greatly rejoice. In what? Well, I had Sharon read for you those opening verses because the first thing we see is that we'll never be able to handle suffering correctly unless we understand a lot of biblical doctrine, theology. He says... Through your suffering, though you are suffering and grieving, in this you greatly rejoice. Well, what's he talking about? Well, we have to go back to the the beginning verses. And you see, they're all crammed with doctrine. Peter says, to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In those four verses, Peter gives us the entire order of salvation. 
The first thing is that we're foreknown. To be foreknown by God doesn't mean to be foreseen. It means to be foreloved. God set his love on us from eternity. Then he chooses us. Then he sends the spirit who sets us apart and works in our life to bring us to the place where we respond and we believe and we're born again. And we're sprinkled with his blood, which is a spiritual way of saying that all our sins are forgiven. And his divine nature is planted in us and this new life begins to grow. And through this process, God's holding on to us. He's shielding us, protecting us by his power until the last moment of history when God will show up and wipe reality clean and it will receive the final end of it all when we're made perfect. It's all there in those first five verses. Foreknowledge needs to, leads to election. Election leads to calling. Calling leads to repentance and faith, which leads to new birth and regeneration, which leads to obedience and sanctification, which leads to glorification on the last day. And that's all in verses one to five. All the systematic theology you need to know. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. What he's saying is that the way you're able to rejoice in the midst of your grief is to know all this theology. You know all this doctrine. Don't ever look, look down on doctrine as academic rigmarole. What, you're, what are you gonna do in your grief? If you say, I don't understand all that stuff, it isn't important. Uh, doctrine divides, Jesus unites. <laughs> it's doctrine that's gonna get you through. Think about that. How well do you know these things? These great things that will enable you to rejoice. Doctrine is not for the bookshelf. You use it. We'll never grow through suffering until you can rejoice and relish and say, look at all God is doing for me. He's moving heaven and earth for me. And as you savor these truths, you rejoice that all, all, that is, all that is God, all that God has, all that he's done, all that he will continue to do in us. And that's what gets you through the furnace of life. That's the first thing this passage teaches us. The second thing we learn is that Christians are subjected to distress and grief. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. The ESV says, you've been grieved by various trials. The word for distress means to be deeply troubled. It's related to a word that means to have a stormy sea. When a river's deluged, deluged in a storm, it isn't blue and clear and beautiful. It's brown 
and mucky. The storm has stirred up the river and the tumult pulls up all the gunk at the bottom. The waters are troubled. That's the word he uses here. Peter says, you're rejoicing even though now we're distressed, troubled, deeply disturbed, in grief, in pain. And so Christians should not be surprised by suffering. It's it's something that will happen to us. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Now this is a paradox, but it isn't a contradiction. And so we are rejoicing, and yet we're troubled. And both are in the present tense. They're both happening now. It doesn't say you're rejoicing now, but you were troubled. And it doesn't say you aren't rejoicing now because you're troubled. It says you're rejoicing now and you're deeply troubled. That's it's so important to understand that it, because if we miss this, we miss the genius and the beauty of our Christian experience. And let me also say, this is not very well understood in Christian circles. In fact, if you were raised in a conservative evangelical Christian church, there's a good chance you've been messed up and confused in this area. There's one very popular 19th century hymn that we sing all the time by Isaac Watts called At the Cross. Chorus goes like this. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. I remember when we sing that hymn, looking around and knowing there are people in the room going through tremendous pain and bearing heavy burdens. And I wondered if they often felt like I did, feeling guilty singing that song. Because I didn't feel happy at all. Because there's a message that's communicated in many churches that this hymn feeds that once you go, once you become a Christian, you might go through times of suffering, but you really don't feel it. You just praise God and claim the victory. You just trust that it's all working out for good and you don't let it get to you. That isn't accurate. Christians don't just experience pain and grief. They are affected by it. Deeply. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
What the Bible actually teaches us is that Christians are both happier and sadder because of the gospel. The experience of the extremity of our emotions is normal. Because of the gospel, Christians are sadder than others. Look at Jesus. He had a perfect relationship with his father. He had uninterrupted peace in his life. Why? But he's always weeping. Why was he weeping? Because he was perfect. The more perfect you are, the more you see the brokenness around you. And for us, in you. When the gospel really gets into your heart, you realize how safe you are and it gives you the freedom to take a fearless look inside and a freedom to admit a lot of sin in your life. You see, until you understand that you are perfectly loved, until you understand that God is eventually going to put the world straight, until that really sinks in and you have that kind of hope, you live in denial. It's impossible for people to really admit how wicked they are because they have no solution for it. They make excuses for their sins because they have no hope, no resources to deal with who they really are inside. They view this same with the, the world. They view the world with that same lens. They think that things can be solved by education or legislation or technology. If we could just get that stupid party out of power, they minimize how bad things really are. When you finally let the gospel deep in your heart, your conscience is strong enough, you have enough hope to admit how bad things are. You, you feel the hurt of other people. It gets to you. You see their unhappiness. The gospel comes in as the scripture says, it takes away our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. It makes us more tender, able to weep. We don't only experience suffering, we're deeply affected by it. More than others. But on the other hand, we have a living hope. Though you've not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And that's something that's always operating in you as well, even during the grief. And therefore, the Christian life is an adventurous life. It's not boring at all. And what, 
what this passage teaches us is that Christians have that balance. We're always experiencing grief, more grief than before. You cry more easily. You sense the troubles of the world more than before. You care more. You're humbled more by your own sin. As you grow, you just see deeper layers of your sin than you saw before. Defensiveness and selfishness. But you also have unspeakable joy. The problems come when this balance is lost and our grief overwhelms our hope. A Christian who understands and faces life is not somebody who's rejoicing and never has grief. The glory of the Christian life is that we have a hope that overwhelms the grief, doesn't take it away. It sweetens it. It overwhelms it. It balances it. And that's why we need each other. Since since I've left this body, I've had some of the most painful seasons of my life. In fact, I, I think it's about 10 years ago now, I... I went through the, a season of my life that was more painful than I, I ever, ever imagined. It, the, the pain was so deep over a period of a couple of months, I didn't know I was going to make it. And through the grace of God, through the help of brothers, God, God's grace saw me through. But more than that, It was through that suffering that God opened my eyes to things about myself that I never would have seen before. Parts of my life that were were hurtful to others, areas of defensiveness, pride, my, my need to control things. God opened my eyes to all kinds of things and, in, and, it, and, it was, and it's been a very beautiful thing, a very painful thing, but a beautiful thing because God's taught me so much about myself through that pain. And I think in a lot of ways, being a Christian is like, like being a furnace in a house. It gets colder and colder in the house and then all of a sudden the cold air makes the heat of the furnace kick on. And it's grief that drives us to our resources, our roots. It drives us to the gospel. It makes us look at what Jesus has done for for us. The grief pushes you to the joy. And it enhances the joy. The joy kicks on like a heat furnace. And that's why we should never try to ignore our grief or run away from it or try to control it. Because if you go into a time of deep tragedy or pain in your life, 
and you have no tears, no emotion, and you just respond by saying everything's great, I'm okay, I'm just trusting God. That isn't healthy. That's brainwashing. That's the way the cults operate. That isn't supernatural power. It's psychological thought control. That isn't the way the gospel works. The gospel makes us both happier and sadder at the same time. The gospel makes us more sensitive and and a more feeling person, healthier emotionally. You may be sadder than most, but you're more hopeful than most. It's not a contradiction, it's just a paradox. The third and last point is that the trials happen not simply because the world is a bad place. Peter isn't simply saying that in the world you'll have trials and troubles because that's just the way the world is. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. If necessary. Peter tells us in this passage, and it's backed up in other places, that if we have trials and sufferings in our life, we need them. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said this, and you should memorize this. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Let me say it again. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. That's the implication of this passage. If it's in your life, you need it. Even if it's bad. If it's not in your life, you don't need it even if you think you do. Why? Because there's an order to your life. Because although our Father hates to see the brokenness in our world and hates to see the tragedies, He's monitoring the tragedies and letting them into our life in stages, in ways that'll teach us the things He wants us to learn. There's an order to our life. Now on the surface, that sounds like an absurd statement. Because we look at our life and it looks chaotic and random. But scripture tells us it looks that way because it isn't our order. It isn't our agenda. It isn't our schedule. Of course it looks chaotic because we didn't expect it. But there is an order. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 5, in chapter 12, the trials of our life are called, he calls them a gymnasium. That's the word he uses. 
It's exercise for the soul. There's a discipline, a regimen. There's a plan. It's just not our plan. That's why it seems so awful. But it's there. Samuel Rutherford said, his wise love feeds us with hunger and fattens us with wants and desertion. We'll never learn who we are without suffering. It shows us our faults and our flaws and our weaknesses. Now, please don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you're in a bad marriage, God doesn't care. God hates, God cares and hates that situation. If you're in a bad job, God cares and hates that situation. I'm not saying that it's always God's will that we suffer and we should never remove ourselves from those situations. It's not like we're saying to God, oh God, keep hitting me, I'm still breathing. That's not the idea. But when we find ourselves stuck and there's no way out and we're hurting tremendously, remember that God is not only bringing you in contact with that boss or your spouse, he's actually bringing you in contact with yourself. We're, confront, we're being confronted with ourselves, our lack of patience, our lack of foresight, our addictions, our foolishness, our ego. And there's no greater gift than he can give us than self-discovery. And there's no more painful gift he could give us than self-discovery. And if there was any better way to give it to you, he would. That's an important perspective to have on suffering. There are different facets and perspectives on suffering in the Bible. And let me just say, this probably isn't the appropriate perspective to share with someone when they're going through a tragedy, okay? <laughs> I don't recommend that you bring up these points. For example, the Bible also teaches us that God hates the evil and suffering in the world. This isn't the world he created. When our Lord was here on this earth and his good friend Lazarus died and he stood before his tomb, he didn't quote Romans 8.28 to the family. The text tells us he wept. But that isn't a good translation of that word. It means he was angry. He was furious. He was angry at death and suffering and angry at the one who caused it. And that's an important perspective to know. But you need this perspective also. Let me close by encouraging us to remember these things. First, 
It's only for a little while. You say, define little while. <laughs> Just, it's temporary. Suffering is temporary. There will be an end to it. Second, we need to remember our theology. Let it sink down into your soul. If you forget verses one to five, we aren't gonna be able to keep that healthy balance of who God is and what he's done and what he's continuing to do in your life. He's moving heaven and earth for you. He's protecting you. Third, remember that he's a father and that he's appointed these things for you to grow under. And the only way you're gonna be a glorious person, the only way you're gonna come out of this fire, not burnt like a crisp, but something beautiful and glorious and refined is for you to see things about yourself he wants you to see. They're not pretty. He wants you to see them and he wants to deal with them because he wants to make you tender and soft and he can't do it without you opening your eyes to who you really are inside. And the only way you're gonna see who you really are is through grief and pain and suffering. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do uh, thank you for this uh, difficult but encouraging word that you indeed are in charge. We thank you for your love this morning, love that began before we were ever born. You had us in your heart. You worked in our life even before we knew you to bring us to the place where we would say yes to you and submit ourselves to you. You place the Holy Spirit inside us, Father, and put your life in us. You've opened our eyes to see things about ourselves, and now you're protecting us, Lord, guarding us. And I pray for those, Father, who are going through tremendous amount of struggle and pain today. May these truths Comfort them. May your Holy Spirit remind them that they are loved and cared for. That, you're, that nothing is going to happen in their life apart from your loving, sovereign care. And you're going to bring them to the place where you want them to be, tender and beautiful. Encourage them, Father. Help them rejoice in the midst of the tears. And come, Lord Jesus. We long for your kingdom. We long for the new heavens and new earth. We look forward to that day. In Christ's name, amen. For benediction this morning, listen to Peter's words in chapter five. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day.